Arabist podcast. Today is Wednesday, 31st of August, 2011. I'm Misandra Lamrani. Today with me, as always, Ursula Lindsay and some special guests. Just returned from Libya, Steve Negus, a freelance journalist, a uh, long, long, long friend of, uh, of the website, uh, as well as another long, uh, long friend of the website, uh, uh, Max Rodenbeck, the Middle East correspondent for The Economist. We're going to be talking today mostly about Libya and its regional impact. Uh, Steve, you, you just came back a couple of days ago. You were in, in, in Benghazi, I think, before the, uh, the advance into Tripoli, and then in Tripoli uh, uh, a little bit after it, it fell to, to the rebel hands. Tell us about what you saw, your experience there. Well, the, the city is still uh, not in any way returned, or was not returned in any way to normalcy when I left. Uh, there was a shortage of drinking water. There was, uh, on the first day I arrived, which was, I believe, Friday, there was still some sniping. There was a drive-by shooting outside the uh, one of the rebel headquarters in which, in which we were staying. Um, but what there wasn't was the power vacuum that, uh, that you saw in Iraqi cities after the fall of the regime of, of Saddam Hussein. But this is an important point, I mean, because uh, you know, for a long time, this this uh, uh, in the commentary on this conflict. I mean, first it lasted a lot longer than people expected. Back in February, March, when it started, people thought it'd be over really soon, and it lingered, and it was, you know, oh no, this is going to be a, a multi-year civil war. It's never going to end. And then this, you know, came as a surprise, and people even thought that, that Tripoli would be the hardest battle. It would be, uh, 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 you know, neighborhood by neighborhood. Street by street, you know, exactly, zanga zanga, you know, dog dog, uh, and it was none of that. I mean, can, what's your insight on why it, that wasn't the case? Well, there there was a bit of zanga zanga in in certain neighborhoods that the Qaddafi forces mm -hmm. fell back upon, but both the absence of a power vacuum and the swiftness of Tripoli's fall stems from the rebel strategy of attacking a city only when they have inside. Um, a guarantee of, of a fairly substantive insurrection that um, for a very long time, you know, actually since February, uh, the rebel leadership had maintained ties with people inside of Tripoli. Um, partly this was easy to do because like most cities in, in the Arab world, they're, they're within Tripoli there are neighborhoods where people tend to come from certain areas of the country. Um, often those areas fell quickly to the rebels, like for example there's a Berber neighborhood called Gurji. Um, which has a lot of family ties with the Jebel Nafusa. There was very easy to smuggle arms, communications equipment, information back and forth. So in many parts of Tripoli, uh, long before the rebels actually descended into Zawi and then started fighting their way down the coast, um, there were cells in every neighborhood ready to rise up and seize the streets. Now, they didn't provide necessarily a lot of firepower. They didn't have a lot of guns at first. But I think what happened was when they did, the, you know, jump out, fan out in the streets, there was a sense of panic among some of the more isolated, less committed regime units. And, you know, okay, they've got, you know, rebel columns on one side, insurgents on the other, you know, enough with it. They, they, they laid down their weapons and surrendered. I, I think that's, it's an interesting point that uh, uh, I think in, in uh, Libya and also in Iraq after the 2003 invasion, the, the, the supposed kind of elite units uh, protecting the regime didn't fight that much. Well, okay, some of them. Uh, one of the one of the key.
key units to protecting the regime simply laid down its arms and surrendered. And, and mm-hmm. the rebel story, this is the one based at the Hamis base on, on, the, on the Western approaches to the city, sort of the main front against the rebels. Um, this is the one that they attacked Tripoli when they knew that that unit yeah. was had agreed to or not its, com- its commander had changed the, the, the rebels said that the commander's uh, brother had been killed by Qaddafi and that he had sort of indicated as early as, I believe, May his willingness to side with, with the rebellion. Um, so, you know, that was, that was their ace in the hole. Uh, but in addition to that, they could essentially guarantee that in every neighborhood of the city, or most of the neighborhoods of the city, you'd have at least a, a small group of Shabab out there in the streets. And again, even if, you know, presumably one regime tank could probably blast its way down the street, but psychologically, to suddenly have your Escape route cut off, your supply route cut off, and when you and when you when you're facing an assault from the other side, it just must have been overwhelming for the defenders. That being said, um, once the regime units, some regime units decided to fight, and they decided to fight against you know utterly overwhelming odds. They didn't seem to defend Babalazizia very much. I'm guessing because they suspected that that if they lingered in that particular area, that they would be bombed. But they fell back on an adjoining residential neighborhoods and, and put up a pretty dogged fight. You know, there were snipers going through the city, uh, shooting for, for days afterwards, you know, and these are people, you know, who, who, they weren't going to win. They were just fighting. Um, so, you know, there, there I, I don't want to sort of, people fought for Qaddafi's regime, uh, determinedly, um, when they, when they could have surrendered. And so, you know, you don't want to, run down their commitment that much. <laughs> Even though what they were fighting for is a you know, highly questionable line. Mm. But, um, you know, another thing that's been talked about a lot since Tripoli fell is the degree to which this was uh, a Berber victory. That, that it came, you know, the, the, the major thrust into Tripoli came from the West, came from the Berbers, or mostly Berber, Kativas, uh, uh, and militias, and uh, uh, rebel groups. Did you, I mean, do you, do you find that's true? Uh, you mentioned this this neighborhood of uh, this Berber, mostly Berber neighborhood of Tripoli, that played a part in the with a fifth column basically against the regime. I mean, is is that an accurate picture? And how does that fan out on the national level? I mean, vis-à-vis the people in Benghazi, vis-à-vis the the NTC's leadership. I'm not sure how many, you know, to what extent the Berbers are represented there. Well, I mean, the Berbers certainly played a part, um, and and, and, and the force, a lot of the forces that went into Tripoli are, are not just of Berber background, but sort of, you know, very militant about showing their, their, their Berberness. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have Amazigh writing glyphs on their, on their vehicles, spray painted on their vehicles, for example. And, you know, when they went into a neighborhood and took over, you know, they would, every unit, you know, when it moved into a neighborhood or captured something or went into Babadazazia would sort of tag the walls with, you know, the, the, the Katiba of the martyrs of, Nalut or Masrata or whatever town they happen to be from. So certainly, you know, the Berbers played an important role in the city, in, in the taking of the city, and you can tell from the walls um, and the graffiti where they were and what they liberated. Um, mm-hmm. their, their words. However, um, I, you know, the Masratans were also there as of the second day, and I have heard that the Masratans were some of the most aggressive uh, fighters among the rebels in terms of actually shooting their way into Babel Azizia. I can imagine um, after what happened to their city, yeah, they've been um, pretty good uh, revenge. Yeah, I mean, and, and in terms of, like, perceiving it as a Berber victory or some other kind of victory, 
one of the things that the National Transitional Council has been very self-conscious about is ensuring that at any point, as much as possible, uh, one, every individual spot that is quote-unquote liberated is, is liberated by people from that area, even down to the neighborhood. And two, that, you know, every group is, every area is, uh, um, feels that it has a share in the fighting. Um, you know, the, the people in the Strata might, you know, say that perhaps they were given too much of a share in the defense of their own city. Um, so, you know, it's not a perfect strategy, but, but, but they're, they're, they've been extremely keen to avoid any impression that any particular area has been liberated by outsiders. Until now, until you come to search. Okay. And, and you mentioned that uh, perhaps because of this, government building has been, you didn't, you didn't see much looting, you saw in fact people protecting public buildings and, 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 and forming sort of neighborhood committees and watches right after that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first thing that the Shabab did when they sort of rose up, other than grabbing themselves a weapon somewhere, was to, uh, was to take hold of whatever public institution was in their neighborhood and secure it. Um, be it a radio station, be it the, uh, the, inter the internal security on the Dakhli headquarters, which we went and visited, they still, you know, not looted, all the files in situ. Um, and it was guarded by, that particular building was guarded by the, 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 the fighters of Beni Ashur, which is their particular neighborhood. Max mm -hmm. uh, you you've covered Libya for 20 years or something, you've been there many times. Are, are you surprised that the regime proved to be so so brittle in the end because it, it did resist for a while no I'm, I'm not i'm not surprised i think in some ways the the um you know it was a regime that maintained power by by capriciousness rather than blanket terror you know it wasn't by numbers it was by uh being unpredictable you know i mean it didn't have a it didn't have a internal security on the same scale as for example saddam hussein's iraq you know where where your punishment was pretty much guaranteed uh, in Libya, it was absolutely capricious, and it was the, idea, the, the that was one of the um, sort of the, the, the marking features of the regime. So it wasn't it wasn't based on very large numbers of people, but on, on the other hand, it was a regime that was built around. I mean, with the, the for the last you know, it's survived for forty two years because it has been through the experience of many potential uprisings, and you know, I don't I, don't, I think Gaddafi survived something like nineteen assassination attempts, for example. Um, but it was structured precisely in order to prevent such an uprising. So, um, you know, with these sort of uh, concentric circles of increasingly loyal groups that were bought off for various reasons or tribally related, I mean, uh, you know, based around the sort of central mafia clan. Um, so, um, you know, it was never, it was never, uh, uh, the, the difficult thing wasn't so much the numbers of the people around Gaddafi, it was mustering the the, 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 the the support in any one area to gain the momentum needed to do it. And mm -hmm. without NATO, uh, it's very unlikely that it could have happened with anything like this speed. I mean, a similar thing might have happened. You might have had an east-west split, for example. Um, there might have been uh, insurrections which lasted for a year or something in one particular part of the country, but it's, I mean, it's a vast country. Um, but to actually get this sort of momentum really required some sort of outside intervention. And I mean, that, that, that really has proved uh, crucial. And do, you, do, you, do you think that it's, uh, there's going to be much of a fallout of the, you know, pretty much the fact that, that, that NATO and the, the uh, 
Western, you know, basically France, Britain, and, and the United States, went way beyond the remit of uh, UNSC in 1973. Um, I'm sure there'll be lots of different kinds of fallout, and of course, some people in the West will claim that this is a, a you know, this 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 proves the um, the uh, the greatness of of, of intervention, um, and it will bolster some people who who claim who you know believe that the West should intervene in more places. Um, uh, but I, I mean, I, I, and other people, you know, of course, have been portraying this from the very beginning as a sort of NATO monstrosity, as a war crime committed by NATO. Uh, uh, um, so there will be a continuing argument from the from the margins, but I think you know every every case is is really sui generis, and I mean this Libya case was um, kind of unique, and it was it was really very very different from, for example, Iraq, you know, uh, um, and uh, you know the, the point at which NATO intervened, we mustn't forget, was when uh, the pro Gaddafi forces were were right at the gates of Benghazi, and it was pretty clear that there would have been pretty awful. Uh, 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 um, blood, bloodshed in, in Benghazi had there not been intervention from the air at that very critical moment. Um, and I mean, you know, we've seen later, later in the conflict, uh, and even in Benghazi before uh, uh, the, 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 the fall of Benghazi to the rebels, um, it was pretty terrible. Um, and, you know, since the fall of Tripoli, we've, you know, uncovered pretty ghastly, grisly scenes of, of uh, large numbers of people executed. Um, and that would very likely have been the fate of Benghazi without the intervention. Mm -hmm. There was uh, an argument being put out uh, not only by, by people who, 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 who were dead set against any form of NATO intervention, but also, for instance, uh, international crisis groups uh, reporting on, Lib on Libya, as uh, I think the last report is from June, suggesting that you know, the war will be extremely... Uh, the civil war has no there's, there's, there's no reason to expect it will be quickly over although you know perhaps that it was it's, maybe it's a lucky thing maybe it was inevitable i mean it, it was hard to know i think in june three months after it started when people thought it would be over in a month back in march uh, uh that negotiations were the way forward that that uh, uh, uh the death toll the the number of internally displaced people would simply not be, not be worth it would, would be, it was better to negotiate with the regime then risk a prolonged civil war that could be extremely destructive. Uh, uh, and obviously the, 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 the experience of, of Iraq and uh, the civil war in Iraq uh, following the invasion, I think weighed heavily on that. Uh, I wonder where you two stand, Stephen Max, on, on, uh, on that issue, whether negotiations were even possible. And, and perhaps whether they're possible or advisable now that you have you know, the Gaddafi holdouts now hold up in his stronghold and, and, and do you have the chance of another siege and further fighting? Is this the time now to turn towards negotiations? The rebels don't seem particularly inclined to it, and that's understandable, but... Yeah, I'm not sure negotiations were possible. Certainly they were not possible with Gaddafi when, when the armored columns were bearing down in Benghazi. I mean, that, that, you know, that was a question of either strike, you probably strike that particular day, or uh, you know, witness um, a terrible urban battle. You know, use of very very heavy firepower against highly populated areas, and all the things that go with that. Um, whether there was room for negotiations at a later point, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, Gaddafi has been uh, had 
multiple opportunities to essentially negotiate himself a way out of Libya and, and provide for his family, provide for other, you know, members, you know, in some way salvaging something of his regime, he never took that. Um, so whether or not he would have ex ex you know, ever extended an offer that the rebels could have found acceptable is, is questionable. Now, however, uh, the rebels are talking about fighting their way into Tripoli, in, into Sirte, um, a city where they claim to have a lot of support, but you know there's not been any visible indication of that to the outside world. Uh, you know, they, they talk about liberating Sirte, but you know, really, in this case, it, it seems like it's going to be actually conquering Sirte. Um, it certainly seems to me that, that negotiations would be a much more preferable way of, of obtaining control of the city than uh, blasting their way in, leaving a deeply aggrieved, bitter pocket of Libya for them to attempt to rule long afterwards. That being said, I don't know the full geography of it, but um, in addition to Sot, there's also the town of the, the oasis of, of Sebha in the Sebha. desert, and uh, the regime's control of two things about Sebha. First off, uh, there is a tribal conflict there between the Gaddafi, Gaddafi's tribe and other tribes, the Adad Suleiman, who probably support the rebels. The Adad Suleiman have risen up, I believe, in June and were put down. Um, and so there is a case to be made for liberating Sabha for the sake of the Adad Suleiman. Moreover, um, Qadhafi's control of that part of the desert allows him to cut off the water to Tripoli, because a lot of the water that flows into the north comes from uh, artesian sources deep in the desert. And I, I don't know the actual geography of where the wells are compared to the oasis, but simply by controlling the little points and, you know, fanning out, it makes it impossible for the rebels to properly obtain control of the wells. Um, it's, I'm not sure if, if, if search needs to fall for the rebels to secure the desert, uh, because, you know, you're talking about, any, any, if you're talking about driving over hundreds of kilometers to attack a town, you know, the logistic requirements to go from one place to the other are, are, you know, very difficult to work out from a map. It may be that they figure that if they take search, then they have a much greater chance of having Sebha, which is otherwise unassailable, uh, sure. well, give I itself mean, up. Search is on, is on a major road, yeah. also connecting east and west. Cert, cert, that too. I mean, you, yeah. you, you, you can get you across can the gulf by plane or by, you know, economically, search is a bit, has a bit of a stranglehold, mm -hmm. but more importantly, um, Sebha really has, has, has potentially a stranglehold over the capital's water supply. So by t attacking the real hardcore center of Qaddafi support, maybe they figure they can get Sebha to surrender, when otherwise Sebha would simply be logistically impossible to send a column across the desert to attack. Mm -hmm. Max? Well, I think, I think uh, the, there's, you know, one of the reasons why progress has looked so you know, slow over the last several months is actually the rebels have been careful not to engage in, in major urban fighting where, they could, where they've been able to avoid it. And I mean, it, it's, it's not quite a, it's a bit of a mischaracterization to say that they've, they've rejected uh, all negotiation or negotiation with, with I mean, they, they've, they've, they've looked for ways to negotiate themselves out of, of, of civilian casualties where, where possible. And, um, and as Steve was saying, this tactic of waiting for uprisings to take place within a city before trying to try to take it over, one of the reasons for that is to avoid the casualties that come from a full an all, all on assault on a place. And given that, I think that the the current situation around CERT is likely to uh, end in some kind of uh, truce or reconciliation because um, uh, for one thing, one shouldn't exaggerate the scale of Sirte. I mean, Sirte is a relatively small city compared to places like Masrata. I mean, it's a city of 70,000, I mean, compared to half a million in, in, in Masrata, for example, 
or uh, uh, approaching half a million around around Masrata. So it's it's not a very large place, and it's also an isolated city surrounded by desert. So once you control the approaches to Sirte, the city itself has no way of surviving. Really, I mean, it's basically it, under siege. It has to surrender. It's under siege, and there's no reason to have to, to to go blasting into a place like that. I mean, this isn't medieval warfare after all. You know, um, so uh, that seems like the the uh, the likely outcome of Sirte will simply be settled by the bringing up of superior, superior uh, firepower within the the the, the region around Sirte. Um, so I, I wouldn't be too too worried about uh, terrible goings on there, and uh, really, once the entire coast has fallen, um, it, it is a vast country. Uh, you know, there may be holdouts for years in some remote part of the country, but uh, I mean, just as you know, a place like Sebha, nearly a thousand kilometers into the interior, may control the water parts of the water uh, resources for for Tripoli. But a place like Sepa also can't survive at all without uh, access to the coast. There's well, no fuel. There's no, you know, there's no, nothing. Well, yeah. so, Sepa, in a way, is a, is a gateway to the Sahel for the Libyans. I mean, it's been, it's, it's been a, a, a just, just because of, of viable lengths there. Of, of, of that, it's an area where Tuaregs, for instance, which uh, were recruited to to fight in the uh, Libyan military before before the civil war began, before the uprising began. Uh, uh, it, it does. It does have a kind of uh, depth into the Sahel, uh, and maybe we can talk a little bit later. Also, uh, Libya had a quite active Sahel policy. Oh yeah, that's mm -hmm. now in chatters and with huge impact on on that region. Of, of uh, that, you know, generally people don't don't care about that much. But Chad, Niger, sure. uh, and Mali, uh, even to Mauritania. Sure. Um, no, now there, there, there are thousands, perhaps even tens of yeah. thousands of, of Tuareg who are, will be fleeing Libya, uh, even including natives of Libya who will be afraid of retribution who are crossing the border into Algeria and uh, Mali. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 it's a, it was a huge uh, smuggling center under the sanctions and I think continued probably into the, I mean, the, the cigarette and, and other uh, and weapons smuggling of, 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 uh, that takes place on a pretty wide scale in the, in the Sahel. Uh, I don't know. I, 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 my, without much information to base it on, I admit that that what's going to be happening in Sepa is going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting on the region that no one is interested in. <laughs> it's uh, uh, it has potential much wider impact in a way than, than what what happened in in, uh, in uh, North Libya on on Libya's neighbors. You know, Egypt and Algeria so far have not been Tunisia have not been particularly impacted. Potentially, yes. I mean, there's a lot of guns out there. I mean, uh, I, I think that this, the, the impact is going to linger on for, for many years, uh, you know, of all this. Um, the, the gun trade all across the Sahara will be, will be impacted by this. I mean, the, the guns all over the place in Libya now, I suppose. And, uh, that doesn't really help very much. And there will be, you know, refugees, people trying to get out with, with money as well. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the impact on the... Um, the, the Islamist insurgency troubles in places like Algeria and Mali and Mauritania and the AQIM. I mean, this is one of the reasons why the Algerians have been very reticent to, to uh, 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 be nice to the, the, the rebels in, in Libya because they, they fear this. Yeah. And in the last few years, Libya's uh, uh, foreign policy has been really quite active at resolving tribal disputes that, uh, uh, in places like Mali where there were insurrections in the north. Uh, uh, and eclipsing Algeria to to to, uh, to some degree, uh, uh, actually, I, it was a 
it was a battleground in this diplomatic fight between uh, uh, Libya and Algeria. But uh, I think it's understandable that the Algerians are, are, are concerned now about what, you know uh, what, what happens, even if, if, if uh, that doesn't mean that it should necessarily uh, give protection and harbor to the Gaddafi family as they, uh, as they have done. So I just have one other question going back to Sirte. Is the assumption that Gaddafi himself is possibly there? Is is I mean, since his whereabouts are unknown, do people think that that's where he's? That's that's one candidate. Another one is Beni Walid, which is a Wanfala tribal town, one of the tribes that is said to be allied with him. I mean, when a tribe is allied, it's not. It doesn't seem to be. Yeah, it means that tribal leaders are allied. Yeah, them, some yeah. tribal yeah. leaders. Any, but anyways, but but Beni Walid, last I heard, was was was, was still still flew the green flag. Um, that's another candidate, and then another candidate is is somewhere in in the in the deep Sahara. Uh, in some, Sahara or some, some, some or someplace even more remote, where we just very difficult to find. Speaking of tribalism, I mean, to, to what extent do you think that you know the, the Alexandras may have a point of saying it's all going to fall apart? The country is unrulable or unmanageable. The NTC has no legitimacy. The tribes will take over. Uh, you've written a lot, Steve, about the uh, including on the blog about the the, the, the uh, parochial nature of. The insurgency in that, and in, in that the armed forces were not, you know, didn't have a very unified command, and that were largely led by uh, uh, provincial leaders, city level leaders, village level leaders who formed their own militias. Uh, uh, how, how do you, you know, close conflict? How, how do you bring order? How do you, how do you disarm? In the areas that I've been to. Um, it seems to me that the NTC has legitimacy without having authority. Um, it has le- the areas that I've been to exclude Misrata, where because there was a sense of having been isolated, I, I, I understand there is considerable resentment against the NTC. Uh, in Benghazi, which is obviously the NTC's heartland, and then in uh, the Jebel Nafusa, my impression was that Almost because Qaddafi had made such a big deal of having, you know, these are terrorists, these are, you know, barbarians, rats, you know, no sense of authority, it's all going to fall apart without me. People went overboard to sort of say that they accepted the NTC uh, as a legitimate government, and this shows that our, essentially our entire revolution is organized and, and, and pure. Um, in the Nafusa, the NTC has, has worked very strongly to sort of give Berber nationalism a sense of, you know, of inclusion. You know, if, if you look at the, if you go to an NTC press conference, you know, at the, the, the backdrop to the speaker, it says National Transitional Council in both Amazigh and in, and in Arabic. Um, in the first draft, and in the first clause of the Constitution, uh, it recognizes the linguistic and cultural rights of Amazigh and, and two other languages. Um, so, you know, there, 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 there is a strong ethic among all these decentralized groups, be they private militias, be they local militias, be they, you know, whatever, uh, to say that we all strongly recognize the legitimacy of the NTC. Um, the killing of Abdel Fattah Yunus, who was a, a military commander in Benghazi, who was supposedly killed by rogue members of one of these, of these private militias, um, the backlash to that is that every is that all the militias now feel they're under political pressure to say how much they respect the legitimacy of centralized command. Um, that being said, 
the NTC has not tried very hard to uh, to give them reasons to complain, to provoke them. It, it is he had a very very light hand in how it deals with all these little local, either militias, either organized by by individual groups, be they a company, be they a, a religious group, be they whatever, or or be they a militia organized by a particular individuality. The NTC has not really gone out of its way to, I mean, ha, has not tried to impose its authority. The test will be is if there is a genuine conflict of interest between one of these regions and between the, the, the centralized leaderships. One last quick question, only be a, uh, as I posted on the blog last week, you know, immediately after Tripoli fell, uh, Richard Haas, the, I think, president of the Council of Foreign Relations in the States, put out an op-ed in the Financial Times saying that there should be a stabilization force in Libya, basically peacekeepers. Do you think that's wise? The NTC has, has indicated that at some point they would accept Arab peacekeepers uh, in certain areas. But they, um, they've rejected the United Nations peacekeepers. I mean, pretty, pretty uh, uh, categorically rejected international peacekeepers. Mm -hmm. So it seems an unlikely, unlikely outcome. In the areas so far, they don't seem to be any particular need for peacekeepers. Um, you yeah, know, because because, because uh, localities are self-governing right now, basically. Yeah. Um, once you get into areas where you have, you know, where, where the rebels have no legitimacy, and again, these are the last areas to be to be captured, starts and then various other smaller towns in the west, uh, and then Sabha, um, you know, a need may become more apparent. Okay. Well. Uh, I'd like to take the discussion to the regional impact of uh, what's happening in Libya. We talked about the Sahel a, a little bit. Obviously, the big question now is, is, is you know, this uh, Libyan intervention is held as a kind of successful model, uh, uh, both in terms of the international community's response and, and you know, the, the United Security Council resolution 1973 and the, the, the idea of responsibility to protect, uh, and also in terms of what Libyans did in that they rose up and took up arms against the regime. And this is the debate now, you know, because this is what happens in international politics. Libya will soon become old news and, and the attention will shift to Syria, which hasn't gotten that much attention until recently, until last week, when, when Obama and, and, and the various EU leaders said that uh, Bashar al-Assad should, should step down. Uh, we've had this conference of uh, Syrian opposition uh, activists not only uh, uh, appointing uh, at least uh, some structure, some skeleton of a leadership, we're not sure how legitimate it is for Syrians uh, uh, yet. And, and we've had some suggestions by Syrians that, well, you know, the Libyan model is the one to follow. Let's take up arms and uh, bring bring down this regime. Uh, how, how do you how do you see that debate uh, panning out? Um, well, I, I think they're, they're very different kettles of fish. I mean, you know, on the, on the, the, the sort of, uh, you know, in making a decision whether the, you know, quote-unquote international community should intervene in a place, there's a scale of le legitimacy, whether intervention is legitimate, uh, you know, which you can make that argument on many grounds. For example, a case like Syria, you could, you could make an argument that in order to protect, protect civilians, it, it's legitimate. But there's another scale, which is whether a... An intervention is 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 wise or practicable, and that's where the Libyan situation was very different different from, for example, Iraq. You know, where it was probably very unwise to, to have a, a large intervention, and the same thing would be true of Syria. That it would be very unwise to have an intervention. It's not the same 
the, 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 the sort of geography and political landscape of Syria is very, very different from, from, from Libya. In Libya, it was possible to do such a thing, partly because it's such a sparsely populated country, uh, largely desert, where you can actually do such a thing as fairly pinpoint military strikes on pretty obvious targets. That's not, not easy to do in a place like Syria. I mean, it's just not practical. I mean, just as importantly, I mean, the entire East went rebel-controlled in a very short time, uh, essentially by, you know, by catching the regime by surprise. Um, you know, the, the, all you had these forces that were disoriented and couldn't be reinforced, and so you had this vast area of Cyrenaica, uh, which could be supplied by land from Egypt or by sea, um, and a very small choke point of military access to it, where you could fly planes and bomb anything coming up the road, um, and thereby defend this area from the air. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 looking at a map of, of Syria, and uh, you know, first off, you know, if, if, if the Syrian uh, opposition took up arms, they're not going to catch anybody by surprise. Um, you know, the Syrian troops are mobilized. And secondly, you know, unless they were to seize control of Latakia uh, and, and then, a, you know, establish a perimeter around the city, um, you can't defend it by the air. You can't. You, and we were speaking to somebody the other night who lived and worked in Syria and, and international, and, and he was saying that the Syrian government probably wants the, the uprising to become violent and military, that it's to their advantage if it becomes an armed conflict. One, I suppose, because all their propaganda about insurgents and terrorists and stuff becomes more believable, and two, because they are... They are built to squash a military insurgency. They're not built to deal with what they've had for the last three months, which is or five months, which is this peaceful insurrection. Do you think that's true? That it would be to their advantage if people finally took up arms? That it would certainly ch change the nature of the of the of the whole question, and it would play. It would certainly play up to all the the the, the propaganda that the government has been turning out for the last six months or so. Um, and that's a danger that's very much recognized by the, much of the Syrian opposition. In fact, until now, even despite, despite the, the, the you know, apparent success of the Libyan rebels, that uh, it's still very much a minority voice in the Syrian opposition calling for taking up arms. Um, and it seems that that's a step that, that, that most of the opposition, um, and particularly in, 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 uh, inside Syria, is very much unwilling to, to take. Um, and although it, it has to be said that at the same time, uh, on, at a local level, um, I think Syrians in you know particular parts of Syria feel really so provoked that the the the, the desire to take up arms is becoming rather difficult to, to to kind of repress you know for the greater good. I mean they're, they're tired of being shot at with no with no guns. We were even told that uh, that the Syrian government was might be facilitating the insert the the, the the protesters getting weapons. That's how much they would like them to go in that direction. That, that's certainly been true in some particular cases. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's been true. For, that's been a strategy all along: is to create a problem in order to then create the quote-unquote you know solution, which tends to be you know massive use of firepower against unarmed people. I mean, the one thing I have to wonder about, though, without knowing about the specific details, is, is how many how many Syrians are still sitting on the fence? You know, how many Syrians would, at this point, would genuinely say, okay, you know, the protesters have taken up arms, 
after having observed all the, you know, the violent suppression of these demonstrations for five months, how many of them are going to say, okay, maybe Assad was right all along? And, and uh... again, just speaking to someone who, who lived in Syria for many years uh, uh, recently, uh, the impression that I got was was that basically most uh, at most local level people have had to make their decision. They're either for or against, and you know they're obviously being pushed rather violently and being against any kind of uprising. And and uh, but the big cities, uh, especially Damascus and, and Aleppo, are ambivalent because they're not their experience of the uprising has not been the same as a place like Zagreb, as a place like Homs even, or as a place like uh, uh, the, the, the the smaller localities maybe on the coast up to Latakia and so on. Where, where, where the fighting has been more intense. I mean, they, they've been more shielded from that. Uh, uh, but I, I think they're, 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 they're ambivalent, but they're also outnumbered. I mean, you know, the, the security presence in yeah. the big, big cities is very obvious and, and, and very frightening to people. So, I mean, even those who, who are not necessarily, you know, who have been made up their minds what side they're on, they, they feel they can't go out and do these things. And so far, where the uprising has kind of taken hold in Syria has been places of you know, often, you know, very much dominant uh, Sunni uh, populations uh, that have tended to be rather isolated and uh, that have been, you know, where it's not been possible to maintain a constant security presence because the, the security is, is stretched rather thinly. But it's, um, you know, the concentration of, of security forces has been really in the cities. I mean, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's evident to most residents of Damascus and, and of central Damascus anyway, uh, and, and Aleppo, that you can't really organize anything very large before that you come in and they come in and clobber you. Uh, but yeah, it, hand, it's basically impossible, from my understanding, in Damascus, for instance. Uh, there are protests taking place every day, but there, you know, a couple of hundred people going up an alley. But there's there's no possibility of seizing a square. There's no possibility immediately. The the Shabiha, the the, the pro-government thugs and, and security forces will come and, and just. The crap out of you. And, and unlike in Egypt, for example, or in Tunisia, they're, 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 you know, they're, they, they start shooting immediately. You know, there's, no, there's no hesitation about uh, causing a few casualties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, Syria will make you nostalgic about Hosni Mubarak. So. <laughs> uh, it I think does make you realize how lucky Egypt was in the sense that um, even when you look at footage of the Egyptian revolution and you see the crowds versus the riot police, you realize that the Egyptian regime was not prepared, had not envisaged really the possibility of, of I mean, although some people were shot and there were snipers, but generally speaking, they were not prepared to use violence against masses of citizens. It just didn't happen. Like, you see the, you see the crowds, you see the numbers, people push through the riot police and the riot police kind of collapses. And, and it, this was such a, a, a huge advantage here, where, whereas to be met really with that kind of firepower, I still just cannot believe how people keep going out week after week. That being said, I mean, actually firing on a crowd, unless you're really sure of the loyalty of your unit, is, 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 is a bad idea. I mean, the, the, the Russian Revolution essentially was started by, by units which had no you know, training in, in, in riot control who shot into a crowd. The crowd kept coming back after they suffered a few casualties, and then eventually the, the unit itself mutinied. And uh, uh, in, in, in Libya, for example, you, you, you could speak to people in Tripoli who, who said that they were kind of pro Gaddafi when they first heard of the demonstrations, but as soon as they heard that people were being just gunned down, that was, you know, that, that turned them against Gaddafi in a way that they wouldn't have been otherwise. And, and, and the, uh, it, it, it's striking just how 
how many people in all the different parts of, of Libya are, are were, were just so committed against the regime. And so, you know, unless you are utterly sure of the loyalty of the units you're using to use live fire against civilians, it's, it's a bad policy. And I, I don't think Egypt ever was. Yeah. It's, it's either a bad policy or, uh, ironically, it's the policy of a weak government, I mean, a relatively weak government. I mean, this is, I think, one of the ironies of the Egyptian revolution is, is in fact, uh, the, 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 the collapse came so swiftly precisely because it was a government of institutions. So when an institution like the police, which pulled out its firepower and attempted to use it in it, its, what it saw as a legitimate fashion, and it failed, and the police collapsed, then the whole edifice collapsed. Whereas in a place like Syria, uh, uh, there, there, are, there are not really institutions in the same way. You again have concentric circles of loyal, loyal groups, and uh, the command structure of all these is, is, has been deliberately made uh, obscure, so that it's very difficult to know who's in charge of what. Um, and it's a, it's a strategy of regime survival that has worked very, very, very well. Um, but it's the strategy of a, um, a clannish and sect-based regime, which is trying to play against the weaknesses of its enemies, but doesn't really have the full strength to actually suppress uh, a blanket uprising everywhere at all at once. But, but, it's not a regime that, that, you know, it's like Libya in that it was a repressive regime, but it's not like Libya in the sense that it's not a stupid and, 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 and largely, you know, primitively run uh, a regime or, or, or a regime that has bought its way into stability with largesse because Libya had a lot of oil money. It's a regime that's been quite clever. I mean, if you look at the last 10 years of, of you know, in 2004, the Bush administration talking about invading Libya, uh, invading Syria, sorry. All the pressure that came through, Bashar al-Assad and the regime survived this. They seem to be playing now for keeps. There's no, you know, despite the talk of reform or so on, they seem to be still confident that they can, this, they can eventually repress uh, 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 things. I mean, how, uh, how, how do you think, I mean, do you think Bashar al-Assad can, can survive this, or will the regime sacrifice Bashar al-Assad to survive? Would be, would be, I mean, one way to, uh, I think in a situation like this, it's, 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 in all these revolutionary systems, situations, it's been a rolling series of events. So it's kind of difficult to, under, to, to predict you know, which way the, the events will, will roll ultimately. I mean, and what seems to have happened in most of these situations is that it's always too little too late from the side of the government, and eventually it's the whole edifice that has to come crashing, crashing down. Um, you know, at, at, at one point in all this, it might make sense for you know parts of the you know Syrian regime to sacrifice the, the Bashar al-Assad or the Assad family or the wider Assad clan as a whole. Um, but I'm afraid they keep. If, uh, the longer there's a delay, the less possible that that outcome is, and the more likely it is that the whole thing comes crashing down. Um, and, and Syria does have this this insurance cards or cards. Of, of, of its, uh, you know, the, the regional setting, strategic uh, uh, alliances, whether that's, you know, having as a neighbor Iraq, whose government is largely backed by uh, Iran, its uh, closest ally with whom it's tightening its alliance, having a uh, disruptive influence in Lebanon and, and, and nuisance-making possibility in, Le in Lebanon for Hezbollah, you know, uh, let's say the you know, one scenario is is inside if there is UN action eventually towards Syria, inciting his Hezbollah to attack Unifil, for instance, the the peacekeeping mission in southern Lebanon, uh, or just Hezbollah to inciting Hezbollah to disrupt the internal balance in Lebanon. Uh, uh, you know, it doesn't look 
I, I really doubt that Jordan would be willing to go out on a limb against the Syrian regime. Turkey may be the wild card here, and that has most influence on the regime, probably of any of its neighbors. Uh, uh, you know, the, what's happening with Hamas, I think, is interesting now. And in in Hamas doesn't doesn't know what to make. Doesn't doesn't seems to be hesitating from completely repudiating the regime that's hosted it for uh, uh, for so many years and that's recently carrying out uh, an attack on a Palestinian camp on the on, uh, uh, on the Syrian coast. Uh, uh, you know, the, Libya was isolated from the rest of the region to a large extent. Syria has tied up in all these complicated ways to all the region's conflicts and, to, and, 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 the, and the various uh, geopolitics. Well, I think that, that's, that's, that's very, very true, but I think, um, you know, the, 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 the Syrian regime really has no friends, though. It has, it has, it has over, the, over time, in such a complicated region, it's always managed to have enough allies to help it stay afloat. And um, it's always been easy to find allies because there's there are enough enmities out there, and and you know there's always you know someone some side to back that will be on you know there's always a faction that you can get on your side. Um, but it's serious allies have you know think until until or have thought until recently that they played the correct bet by betting on the survival of the Damascus regime, and so far that's that's proved correct. I mean you know in the Lebanese situation. There have been lots of struggles, uh, and there have been essentially two camps quite polarized, one pro-Syrian, one anti-Syrian. And the pro-Syrian camp seems to have made the right bet in the last five years or so. Um, but all of those allies are now feeling a little bit skeptical. And you can begin to see that they're beginning to distance themselves from, from the regime in Damascus, including Iran, for example, where the Iranian foreign minister just very recently came out with a statement said, telling, you know, advising Bashar to listen to the legitimate demands of his people, uh, even has, 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 has <laughs> yes, very ironic. and even Hezbollah now has toned down its its rhetoric of support for for the, mm -hmm. for the Syrian regime. I mean, many of these people are beginning to worry about an outcome that is not the survival of the Syrian regime and what that means for their interests. And this has happened with with Hamas already. I mean, they're the first first to go. I mean, and it's 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 in some ways, you know, it's it's a sad commentary on the state of Palestinian affairs that Hamas has stayed with. A regime which is, you know, pretty starkly sectarian. Hamas is a is a, is a Sunni Muslim Brotherhood movement, and it is, you know, allied itself with with a rather strange, you know, uh, 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 um, you know, the so-called resistance alliance, which is led by Iran, a Shia power, etc., etc. I mean, one doesn't want to exaggerate the Sunni-Shia divide, but still, it's, it puts puts Hamas in a rather strange position, uh, in which Hamas finds itself having to pay a price with its own constituents for supporting a regime like like. Uh, the Assad regime in Syria, um, and that price just at a certain point it just gets too high, and the same thing could happen with other friends of, of the so-called friends of the regime, including Hezbollah. I, I think one of the interesting outcomes of, of what's happening in Syria, but also of, of Libya, obviously, is, is Qatar's foreign policy. I mean, Hamas uh, logically now go to Qatar, as, as I think has already started. This. The Israelis are already making noise about how Qatar is as unfriendly, have broken the, the very little diplomatic. Relationship they have with with with, uh, with Qatar. Uh, uh, They've had a very interesting and quite 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 daring and quite successful strategy throughout the Arab revolutions. I mean, Qatar has, uh, whether you agree with it or not, a pretty pretty interesting and successful way of 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 
of becoming a player in the region. I mean, through, yeah. through Al Jazeera and through its support for Libya and through, I mean, they, they've, uh, they've, they've taken the, the right side of things, I think, so far, and certainly increased, I think, their influence. And, uh, yeah, Hosni Mubarak, you said when he first uh, visited the Jazeera studios, uh, all this noise from this matchbox, you can think of all this noise from this tiny little peninsula of a country of, uh, what, 700,000 people, uh, 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 you know, basically one city that's not even that big is playing such a dominant role in the region's affairs. I mean, is that, is that because Qatar is so strong and, and clever, or is it because all well, the others are weak? Well, it's because the money, well, it's because of the financial resources, because, yeah, which are they're, absolutely they're, astounding. But, it's, but I think there's money, there are two things. I mean, one is, one is exactly as you put your finger on it, which is that all the others are very weak. And that's, that's unfortunately been the, the constant of the Middle East for the last, you know, 200 years. Uh, why has everyone been able to meddle always in the Middle East? Because the whole place is so weak. But I, I, the, the other card that, that uh, uh, Qatar wields in a rather, you know, not necessarily direct way, but it's, it's its relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood. And, you know, when, when you talk about the Muslim Brotherhood, you don't necessarily mean the Muslim Brotherhood as an organization. You're talking about like-minded people, fellow travelers and so on. And they are the main movers in almost all of these movements, uh, in, in, or, or have been you know, key movers in all of the revolutions so, so far, um, you know, including Libya, including Syria now. It's not necessarily, you know, in Syria, it's not so much the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood. It is you know, fellow travelers of, and not even necessarily political Islam as a, as a, as a, you know, a party or something like that. But it's, it's a sort of way of seeing things that is expressed by the Jazeera channel, backed by lots of money from Qatar. There's a certain idea, I think, in, in uh, the Emiratenis of Muslim revivalism. I think that that's perhaps the, 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 Muslim, the Muslim Brotherhood-like ideology, that, 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 that and, renewal of the... And as you're saying, if the whole region has sort of been so, so, so weak and so incapable of imagining anything besides the status quo. Qatar has been quite imaginative. They've been quite, they've, they've made the leap, they've, been, they've sort of seen the future, it seems like, in a lot of these things. Whereas a lot of the regimes have just been betting on keeping things as they are forever. That's I don't know, it's high risk poker, I mean, I don't know. I don't know, Qatar had the insight to sort of thumb its nose on, on the sort of, you know, Arab League consensus policy of we all have each other's backs. You know, they, they, well, if, if, if the entire Arab League did it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, true. But, 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 but Qatar was there first and, and, uh, and, and, and was, was out front in providing support to the rebels. And in uh, Egypt, they were not, I mean, in Egypt, they went with the Egyptian yeah. revolution full, full throttle quite, quite, quite early on. I mean, their relationship with Egypt was already bad, but, um, the other, the, other thing about, the other thing about Qatar, sorry, is, is that, I mean, when you talk about Qatar, you're, you're not even, and you say it's a very small place, but it's even smaller than that, because you're talking about a very few people who control all the money and, and, and all the information. I mean, are we basically talking about the, the emir, the, the foreign minister, and the emir's wife? And it, it almost seems sometimes that's what it boils down to. It's a, it's a, very, <laughs> it's a very small circle of, circle of people. Yeah. How about... Well, one last thing on the regional note. I'm, I'm a bit puzzled by where Saudi is. I wonder if Saudi is a bit puzzled by where Saudi is in all this. You know, we're in an aging king, uh, uh, slow motion succession process. Uh, no one sure sure what next. Uh, uh, no big trouble, but but a certain malaise in, in Saudi society. Uh, where, where's that going? Well, I think a lot of Saudi Arabia. Uh, 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 
despite the fact that the Saudis are accused of being Wahhabis and so on, I mean, you're actually talking about fellow travelers of the same model of, of, uh, of Islamic revival. You know, I mean, the dominant trend in Saudi Arabia is the Sahwa, the revival movement. You know, so I mean, it's it's not that far apart, despite the sudden, the, the sometimes you know political divisions between the Saudi ruling family and the Qatari ruling family, for example. But it's not that far from 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 Saudi hearts, you know, where this is gone, except for the democracy part of it, which is obviously anathema to the ruling family in, in, in Saudi Arabia. Um, yeah, and let's remember of Qatar, really. Well, I mean, yeah. for itself, if yeah. perhaps not for others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you have a citizenry that is, you know, tiny. Yeah, the uh, richest in the world. And the richest citizenry in the world. Uh, uh, you don't really have to worry too much about that. Um, you know, uh, the, the actual voting, potentially voting citizenry of Qatar, you're talking about 100,000 150,000 people. Um, so it's really very, very small. Um, but Saudi Arabia has had a, a pretty feeble uh, direct role in, in all of this. I mean, it's, it's, it is involved in, it's become a gerontocracy and uh, you know, is, is involved in some internal affairs to a large extent and has not played an assertive role. In fact, there were places where it attempted to be assertive in Lebanon, for example, and didn't succeed. Um, and uh, but it has played a sort of supporting role. I mean, you know, the Saudi money and guns did go to the Libyan rebels. Saudi Arabian media has been very important in undermining the regime in Damascus, even though the government has claimed to be playing a neutral role. But the Saudi government hasn't lent its full weight to these revolutions because they, they do fear that they will they could get closer to home. Yeah. Um, we're going to end the podcast uh, with uh, two things. First, we're going to talk... Uh, about a Libyan book uh, in, our, in our regular, semi-regular feature of reviewing books. Uh, a lot of people have discovered the, the Libyan uh, novelist uh, Hisham Matar recently. I mean, he, he's quite accomplished already, but uh, I, I, think, I, I think a lot of people for the, for the first time in, in their lives have probably focused on Libya and started to think about, oh, you know, uh, about the country. And Hisham Matar is probably the most successful literary export of Libya. In it's, recent times, at least. It's a good place to start. I mean, his uh, 2006 novel, In the Country of Men, which was uh, nominated for the Booker Prize. I can't remember if it won the Booker Prize. I think it was just nominated. But it is uh, an absolutely excellent novel, uh, narrated from the point of view of a, of a small child whose father is involved in uh, opposition politics. I think it's set in the 70s. Yes, yeah, yeah. And uh, it, 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 it's just, I think it's hard to, to, write, to write about politics, to write a great novel that tackles politics sometimes can be hard, and he manages to, to mix the personal and the political. It's sort of a day in the life of this family as uh, the Gaddafi regime tracks the, the father and his friends, narrated from the point of view of a nine-year-old boy witnessing this, and it's beautifully written. It's just absolutely fantastic. Really, it's a great place to, to, to start to, to get a sense of uh, what, what Libyans have, have lived through. It's really quietly chilling. I mean, it's really, you know, you, you get the sense of uh, the French call le cafard, the, 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 the sense of dread that, that, that kind of follows you. And even as a little boy, you know, he, 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 he understands 
the, you know, the secret meetings, the intimidating visits, the, the innuendo used before the violence is used. The, the, the sheer creepiness of, yeah. of the Gaddafi regime really comes out. I mean, there's hideous scenes on television of people being hanged and so on I mean, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a basketball court. It's really uh, ghastly. And, and the way everybody has to make, everybody has the choice between terrible decisions. The way you're put in a position where everyone, including like a child, has has no option but to, I mean, the mixture of guilt and, and shame and hypocrisy and that, that you are, and the, and the bad choices that you're forced to make and the betrayals that you're forced to make when you're put in a situation like that. And the, the sort of the horrible vulnerability of people. Uh, against this incredibly capricious monster, yeah. In, in a way, you know, I mean, in Syria, for instance, one of the most striking things that happened in recent time, you know, a lot of people have died and a lot of terrible things have happened in Dara. What happened to Ali, uh, who was the cartoonist, prominent Syrian cartoonist whose hands were broken, you know, it's really just, I mean, it, it goes to that level. And that's where maybe the regime is not, is not clever enough that it understands the, the symbolic power of things like this at the international level, at the, of course, at the domestic uh, uh, level, that, 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 you know, that, that level of, of, of just complete uh, uh, pettiness. But that, 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 that's, uh, in, in fact, though, that, that has been, in some ways, that, that's been one of the, the methods of a lot of these regimes that, for, for a very long time. Is this but in a, the context of an uprising, it's, 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 it becomes very different. Yeah. I mean, they, they also cut out the vocal cords and throat of another, of a singer. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, uh, it's sort of this kind of medieval... Um, it's, it's mafia thinking. It, it, you know, it, 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 it's kind of like the... Uh, you know, waking up with a horse's head in your bed. <laughs> in the scene from The Godfather, it's that kind of uh, personal, uh, personalized uh, 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 violence. Uh, I, I think Matar has a book that recently came out a few months ago, and uh, he's also been writing in the last uh, couple of weeks about what's been happening in Libya and his, course, his personal elation uh, after the liberation of Tripoli. We'll, we'll put up the links to, to those pieces. Well, the, 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 his first book uh, uh, in the country men was partly autobiographical, of course, about his own father who disappeared. Um, and his, his second book, uh, Anatomy of the Disappearance, also uh, uh, touches on, on, on that. But it's, the second book is actually very, very different. I mean, it's, it's not so much a political novel, it's much more a sort of personal psychological novel. Um, but equally, equally brilliant and with an equal sense of dread, but it has this sort of... Uh, Unfolding character, character of, of more and more revelations that are, uh, it's quite riveting. It's a very short book, but also very, very rich and um, uh, absorbing. Yeah, his, his, his father was a Libyan dissident who, when the family was in exile, was um, kidnapped by Egyptian state security and handed over to the Libyans. And he wrote a piece in the New Yorker recently where he's, it's obviously been a huge personal relief and joy and vindication to see both Libya and Egypt become places where he feels at home again. We still need the details of what happened to come out. I mean, in just the 1970s and I think a little bit later, there were a lot of uh, Libyan-backed kidnappings and disappearances of, uh, of, of, uh, of rebels, of uh, loyalists to the monarchy uh, that were never really explained. I mean, and, and unfortunately, uh, Although some documents from state security have come out, some you know, the, the secrets are only slowly coming out. 
Well, hopefully, Flakif, like you say, Steve, the offices of, of the, the intelligence services in Libya are being, are being well preserved by the rebels. We'll get some information out of there. Okay, and this brings us to the end of the podcast. The second thing we'll leave you behind from Lib- uh, leave you with uh, from Libya is is a song that we've played on the blog before uh, that we found on, on on YouTube in the video of Misrata before it was uh, destroyed, uh, uh, and that link to that post will be up. Uh, it's called Ayanesani. Um, it's by Rida Akrar, and. Uh, that's it uh, for us. Uh, I'm Asandola Marni, Russell Lindsay, Steve Ningus, and Max Rodenbeck. Bye we'll, bye. See you next we'll week. We'll see you next week, but we'll be back with more coverage of Egypt. <laughs> Yeah.